Well, welcome everybody. Hope you had a great uh, post-Easter week and that you didn't like come off a big sugar high from eating all those peeps and stuff. Anybody eat those things? That's disgusting. I, I just, sorry. But anyway, no, that's okay. Uh, hope, that's kind of like what, what life is like, right? I mean, it's go, 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 go. And that's uh, what we want to talk about today. But before I go, go, go today, uh, I just got two things I want to remind you of. One is that pastor's lunch. I want to give you a special invitation. Uh, a personal invitation is what I should say. Uh, I'd really love to have you there, especially if you're newer with us or you came to Easter and said, you know what, I, we should really check this out again. And I encourage you to be back here next week for the pastor's lunch because here's the deal. I'd like to meet you, but I'd also really like you to meet the, pe- the, the people that really make this place work. <laughs> and it's not me. So we invite a bunch of those people too, leaders, staff, and so forth, so you can meet those people too. Second thing I want to tell you, and then I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of say it and drop it, and you're not going to get it out of me. You can torture me out there in the lobby, but it's not going to tell you. I have a big announcement to make next week. And in fact, I'll probably have somebody up here at the beginning with me. Uh, I, in fact, I haven't asked him yet. I'm just announcing it right in front of him. Uh, but uh, something we're going to announce that is, is you know, it's, it's sort of subterranean, kind of what we've been talking about today, but it's really big. It's, it's something that could help us uh, launch into a whole new era of ministry as a church. And so we're very excited about it. I'm going to announce it at the beginning uh, of the message next week. That's all it is. You should be here next week. So, um, so let's start this, this series, Pack Your Bags, because what this is really about is this. You know, we, we're never really settled where we are. There's always something next, right? It's always, I got to go, I got to go, I got to go. In fact, maybe you're feeling right now, I, I think we better go. Uh, but let, let me see if life feels like this. Uh, this. This series is about this. How to prepare to get to where you've got to get to from where you currently are, that you are called to be from where you are, were recently, that you can even remember. Okay, so does that kind of feel like, it? yeah, kind of just flying so fast? Let, let's put it in a more concise term. This is really what Pack Your Bags is about. Pack Your Bags is, is preparing how to prepare for what's next. Because there's always something next. Hopefully you've got something next that you're kind of looking forward to, a change in life, uh, uh, a transition, something new. Maybe it's in your family. Maybe, maybe the kids are going to school, you know. You, you, you take your kid to the, to the bus stop. Or you drop them off at the grade school or at the kindergarten. Their backpack is bigger than they are, you know. And I, I remember that day. I remember dropping off the first one right there. And I suddenly, it dawned on me. I looked at Sharon and I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me somebody else is going to have control of my kid for six hours a day, five days a week, and I can do nothing about it? And she said, yes, dear, you knew this was coming. Oh, I mean, I went through a real trauma there trying to figure out how to deal with that. And then they went to college, and I won't even tell you about that. But so, so maybe, but maybe you're the one going to college, or maybe you're getting married, or, or maybe you're having your first child. You know, that's a big change. Or maybe you're, maybe you're having another child. If it's your second child... Big change, okay? If it's your third child, we're going to pray for you right now. And if it's a fourth child, this has got to be a whole series for that. So, you know, just crazy stuff. Or, or maybe you're uh, heading toward uh, empty nest time. You're not there yet, but you can see it on the horizon. Or, or maybe you're headed toward retirement. Maybe you're still kind of preparing and planning for that. You, you're not even sure what that looks like because it's a whole new world. It's new territory. You've never done that before. And, of course, we have the biggest change at the end. All of us have a big change uh, in terms of going, transitioning into eternity. In fact, I have on good authority that there's somebody watching this on live stream right now who's kind of right at that door. And, 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 and I'm, I know this person is prepared and that God is, is with them and, and working that through. But how do, how do, we, how do we do it ahead of time? Because it's, it's just silly knowing that there are events and changes that happen and come into our lives. It's silly not to prepare for them if it's at all possible. And that's really the question. Is it possible to prepare for what's next? And the answer is, yes, it is. But it's going to take some outside help. It's going to take some stress I don't know if you knew this, but those of you who, uh, you know, raised your hand, the 29 people who raised your hand last week to start walking with Christ, the, those of you who filled out cards, the 40, some, 40 people or so that said, yeah, I'm believing today, and, you know, I, I should have maybe told you this, but, you know, your life is not stress-free once you become a Christian. I'm just saying, right? In fact, and if God's not going to take it out, we, we shouldn't think that we're, we can take take out stress. And the reason God doesn't take it out is because if he takes it out, he has to take you out. So, I mean, 
that's really why, why it is, because there is actually a good size distress, even though stress gets a lot of bad press, and it should. But the reality is it's going to take somebody beyond you, and it's going to take a focus that, that is willing to change my life and say yes ahead of time to that someone if I'm going to be prepared for whatever is next. And we, and we haven't even talked about the gut-wrenching stuff yet. That life goes on, but it completely changes your life. But the preparation is the same. It's a different experience, and I'm not watering down anything that anybody's going through. But to be prepared for what's next, whatever life holds next when we walk out the door today, when we go into that next season of life, or whatever it is, is it possible to be prepared? And in God's story, according to God's story, it is. Now, we, we've been reading through God's story in this uh, reading plan called Flying Through the Bible. In a way, no, that's not what it's called. It's called Love this book. And we've been reading through this, and, and we've kind of skipped some things because we've had two weeks since we kind of hit text that we're reading in, okay? For those of you who are reading along, let, let me just say this. The reason we didn't deal with whatever it was we were reading in the Bible last Sunday is because we were reading Judges. And Judges isn't a good topic for Easter, I'm just saying. So we, we didn't do that. So, but, but let me try to catch us up about where we are and where we've been going. When, last, uh, two weeks ago, we were at, with Joshua at the Jordan River, and they crossed the Jordan River, and God says, have courage. And so as they, as, they, as they cross into the promised land, God has already, while they're wandering around the wilderness, has established Israel as a theocracy, you know, a, a nation of laws. And, and, and uh, administration of judges. These judges were sort of like his chiefs of staff. Some of them were really good uh, chiefs of staff like Deborah. Some of them were kind of halfway okay chiefs of staff like, you know, scaredy cat uh, Gideon. And then there were some really nasty violent ones, just horrific ones. And, and, and uh, you know, but, but it was all about God being the king, God being the, the, the one who was in charge, God being the president, God being the, the one who was the theo of theocracy, okay? And, and so let's just kind of sh- talk about where we are, because we're coming up to the, to the ninth book today in the Bible. We've been just reading through it, and, and we've kind of skipped over Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Let me just explain those, because it sets up what's going to happen in the book called First Samuel. The first, the book we talked about two weeks ago was Joshua, and that's about taking the promised land, sort of. And the reason it's sort of is because God says, I want you to take all of this, and I don't want you to mingle with the people, and I don't want you to mingle with our gods. What did, what, what did the people of Israel do? They do take the land, most of the land, but they still mingle with the people and mingle with their gods because that's what they do. It's their way. And by the end of the book, Joshua finally stands up. He's had enough. He says, look, I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And a bunch of other people say, yeah, we will too. But then he dies and people stop doing it. And, and, and you come into the book of Judges, which is a really weird time. It's a time of society devolving and becoming undone. And if you've read through it, it's just, just crazy stuff. It's, it's a mess. It's a cultural, societal mess, really. And there's all these judges trying to do this thing and that thing and do it their own way. And in fact, there's an interesting statement that shows up twice in the book of Judges, and it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Okay, and you say, well, wait a minute, I thought God was king. That's right, but these people were trying to kick him out. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what they saw fit, or literally what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound familiar or what? Everybody doing what was right in their own eyes, regardless of what God thinks about it, regardless of whatever happens to anybody else and how it hurts or touches anybody else. But then right in the middle of this mess, God drops a story of a woman who's not even a Jewish person, not even an Israelite, a a woman named Ruth. And, and, And Ruth is this little romantic interlude, okay, that only sets up the greatest king, which we'll look at today, and the Messiah, because of her faithfulness and this sort of little love story, but it's so much more than a love story because it sets up the whole rest of the story and the coming of Jesus, which we looked at last week. And, and, and so what it shows is, is God never has a situation when a world, when a culture, when a family, when a town, when a city, when a, when a nation becomes so screwed up and so messed up and so undone that God doesn't still have somebody amongst them that's faithful to him. And that God doesn't still have a remnant that he will be faithful to as they are faithful to him. And he's got this. It's a great story. I encourage you to read it. It's only four chapters long. 
And uh, if, if you haven't read it yet. But it, that brings us up to the doorstep of uh, 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel, again, Israel has no king because they, they kicked him out. But, but then they start looking around. They go, well, we want a king. We, everybody else has got a king. You know, how come we don't have a king? And they're just looking at all these earthly kings. And some of them were real scoundrels and, and, and wackos. But, but in, in the early chapters of Samuel, Samuel in chapter 8 has this experience. The elders of Israel approach him, and, and it says, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. That's where he lived. It was north of Jerusalem. They said to him, you are old. Which, that's kind of rude to kind of start with that, but you are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. You mean like one of those? Well, whatever, but just they've all got one. We want one. So nobody's ever appointed a king in Israel before. Samuel, who is the last of the judges and the first of the great prophets, okay? So he's kind of in charge. He goes out and looks, and what does he do? He looks at the tallest, biggest, handsomest guy, and he makes him king. He calls him, his name's Saul. And Saul is a guy who's just wanting to be everybody's buddy, really. He, he's just wanting to be the big cheese. He's just wanting to have a good time. So he's sort of got a half heart for God, Who's, who's saying, you know, look, Samuel, I know you're ticked off that the people want a king, but it's, you know, don't, they're not rejecting you. It's worse than that. They're rejecting me. So give them a king, but make sure that they know that I'm going to pull the strings of the king. And Saul doesn't really, doesn't really uh, connect with God. And so it's, he starts off okay, but it devolves and devolves and devolves, and pretty soon it ends in disaster. And the, the beginning of the end, the, the place where it really blows up and everything, it's over, is in chapter 15 of Samuel. It's just before the chapter we're going to look at, so it feeds into what we're going to see today. So let me, just, let me just tell you what happens. God tells Saul, I want you to go out and I want you to wipe out completely the Amalekites, because they were apparently an incredibly wicked people. They'd been causing all kinds of problems all these 360 years since Joshua uh, for the Israelites. So he says, go wipe them out. I don't want you to loot them. I don't want you to plunder them. I don't want you to bring any of their stuff back. I don't want to bring any, because God does not want Israel to mix up with these guys who are being so wicked and evil, not even their animals. So Saul goes, he does that. He conquers the Amalekites, but then he starts to reinterpret God's rules, God's statement, God's direction. He said, well, maybe God didn't really say that, so you can kind of start to see how this fits in with the serpent in the garden, right? And he says, you know, you know I, I, there's some really good cattle and really good sheep. So he sends his guys out to collect some cattle and some sheep, and he kind of sneaks them in uh, back into Israel, and, and he uh, has them, uh, you know, just kind of off to the side. Well, of course, God finds out about it, comes to Samuel and says, he's done, that's it. I'm pulling the plug on his kingship. His administration is over. And, and so Samuel, of course, he's livid because, you know, Saul's his guy. He runs off to Saul and says, you have done the stupidest thing. You're done. God has rejected you. You are no longer king. You may be still sitting on the throne, but it's all downhill from here. It's over for you. And Saul, Saul tries to play the innocent victim. He says, what? Why? Wow. How come? He says, because you have violated God's direction. You have not done what God asked you to do. You, you've, you've, you, right in his face, you've kept some things from him. You've kept some animals and some cattle. And Saul, he really actually does this. He goes, what cattle? What animals? And all of a sudden, right about that time, apparently, the, there's some mooing and some buying, okay? And Samuel says, well, what's that? And Saul goes, I don't hear anything. And, and I like to think it's not in the text. This is Dwayne distorted version. I like to think they had a staring contest. And then finally says, Saul goes, oh, okay, yeah, we kept some, but it was really because we wanted to sacrifice these great animals to God on the, on the altar. And Samuel says, you fool. And basically he says, you're done, God says so, there will be a new king anointed, and you've got nothing to do with it, you won't even know, but you, it's over. And drops the mic and basically wipes it walks off. And that's where we are when we come to the story of the day, which is a pivotal story in our story, in God's story. And it has some things to say to us about how do you pack your bags? How do you get ready for what's next? In the midst of a, a situation that is so full of transition and change, it's, your head is spinning. And so uh, I invite you to turn to Samuel, 1 Samuel 16. 
uh, where we begin to hear what's going to happen with this next king and who it is going to be. And look at verse 1, because right from the get-go, we learn something about what you need to look for if you're going to pack your bags, if you're going to, if you're going to be prepared for whatever it is that next that God brings into your life, that life brings to you. If you're going to be ready for that, right up front, it tells us something to look for. Here's what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? since I have rejected him as king over Israel. So apparently Samuel's just bummed out about this whole thing, how Saul turned out. Fill your horn with oil. That's uh, Old Testament for pack your bags. And be on, my, on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, which is interesting. Bethlehem is just a backwater one-horse town. It's, you know, nobody cares about it. Ever heard of Bethlehem before? Mm, it kind of shows up over and over again, doesn't it? I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. See, what is hidden in here? What's, in, what's embedded in this verse? And specifically in one word, that word chosen, if you're circling, you can circle chosen, is, is something that God says he's going to do. And, and, and something that God says is, is, is provided for all of us. In fact, that's what the word chosen means. It's the Hebrew word ra'ah, okay, now, which actually I didn't even need to tell you that except you can impress your friends, you know, some Hebrew, ra'ah. Um, but what it means is it means that God will provide. It means I have provided. It's the exact same word that is used in Genesis chapter 22 when, when God says, oh, by the way, Abraham, you, I gave you that one and only son. I want you to take that one and only son. I want you to go sacrifice him on the mountain over there. Remember that? Like, oh, man, what was that like? And then they get up the next morning, and Isaac, his son, is coming along, and Isaac looks around and says, hey, Dad, there's no animal to sacrifice. How are we going to do a sacrifice? And, and Abraham's walking along, and he says, God will provide. Same provision, same, same, same terminology. And, and uh, then, of course, God does provide with the goat, and God stops him from killing his son, Isaac. But this, here, this word shows up nine times in this story. But it's not translated chosen or tra translated provide all the time. In fact, it has such a big, huge amount of meaning. You could, there's a lot of different things. It, it, it basically means that you see that God can provide and that it is deeper than just appearances. This word can be translated as appearances also, which that's how it's translated several times in this chapter. In other words, what I think this is saying, and this is the thing you got to look for, is God's deeper provision. His deeper, deep provision that is beyond what our eyes usually see. When we just had this cursory look at, at life or at ourselves or the circumstances, God has a deeper provision. God has a pre-provision for whatever's next. He has something he wants to place in us that provides for what's next that nobody else maybe sees. We just know it because we can sense it. That's what this word means. I've already been working on this. I've got provision for you, you see, the re when we don't have this thing that God wants to provide us with, this, this deeper provision, this beyond appearances, a beyond the way seem, things seem provision, when we don't have that, that's why we get in situations like Saul, who's trying to hide stuff, thinking he's actually hiding stuff from God when he's not, but he appears to himself to be hiding stuff. It's why we have such difficult relationships with one another sometimes, because we don't know how they're going to act. They don't know how you're going to act. They don't really know what's next with you. And you don't know what's next with them. When you stand before the altar and you say, I do, you really don't know if you can. Right? Isn't it? Let's be honest about that. When she says it or he says it, and the, other one, and, and the same is true about what you see in them, right? You're, you're not really sure what the future looks like. So, but unless we have something else that's more firm than that, deep in us, we could have some real problems in what's next. The same is true of uh, even ourselves. We don't really know what's, what's next in ourselves unless we have some deeper provision, some, some information, some help, some, some presence from God, right? Or, or uh, you know, it's, it's true about whatever's next in the world, whatever's next in the society, whatever's next in our, uh, our country. It's also the reason when people don't know, have a, a firm sense of God's provision, it's why they kind of hoard things and, and collect things for what's next, you know? That's why people aren't kind to one another as, as they could be. Because I might need that emotional energy for later. 
That's why we don't become as generous as we, we could be. Because I might need that for later. My family might, nope, so you can't have that. So we're not, you know, we're not as generous because we don't have this sense of, of this deep provision from God that God's got this. But there's something really encouraging in here too I want you to see. It, you know, since God is providing a king in the middle of this mess in a society that's becoming undone, it means that God never loses control of the kingdom. He never loses control of the kingdom. Whether that kingdom's called Israel or the United States of America, God never loses control of what he's up to. He will always have, as we saw with Ruth, his remnant. In fact, this, this whole thing is, is explained further in the next several verses. Look at this, beginning at verse 2. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And he's not lying there. He is going to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me one, the one I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, <laughs> they asked, do you come in peace? In other words, are we in trouble? What are you doing here? You know? Apparently, Samuel had a bit of a reputation. And uh, he said, did we mess up really bad? Verse 5, Samuel replied, Yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then they consecrated Jesse, then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, the oldest one, okay, and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed standing before the Lord. So Eliab is the tall, strong, handsome firstborn. I'm a firstborn. I don't know that that matters, but... But Eliab is the, the strong. But here's the problem. That's exactly how he picked Saul, right? The guy who stood ahead above everybody else. So this is Eliab. And listen, those, the appearances, the, the, the way things look to us is why people miss what God sees in you. It's why you miss what God sees in them. And that's exactly what's going on for uh, Samuel, because he's a human being. He's a prophet, yeah, but he's a human being. This is why we need God's provision to see things that really are really real below the surface, but beyond the appearances, because appearances can be false, can be phony, can be fake. And God's deep provision isn't just kind of a, a gloss over. It's not all the answers that you're going to need for whatever's next. God gives you the answers when you need them. It's not a life that it promises to be all, no problems, not, not going to have any more problems, not going to have any more stresses, not going to have any more challenges. It's none of that. It's really real that God says, but when you get there, this provision will be there for you, which is, is exactly the, the place where... Um, a place for where Samuel actually is at this moment and where the society and the world is and probably is the same for all of us, right? I used to say this all the time. Life, whether you're a Christian or not, is sort of like this. You're either coming out of a problem or you're going in a problem or pretty soon you're about to go into a problem, right? I mean, that's kind of the challenge of life and what's next. And unless you have, have the, what, what, what God's talking about, this deep provision, you won't have it now. How God delivers this deep provision and where He puts it is the is the theme of not only First and Second Samuel, but really the entire Bible. Jesus even picks it up, and it's mentioned right here in verse seven of First Samuel sixteen. It says this: "But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him.' Again, there's the appearance word. The Lord does not look at things the way people look at." People look at the outward appearance, there it is again, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'm looking to provide deeper, I'm looking to provide, that's the place of the deeper provision, the heart, at the core of who you are. I want to know if your heart is in any way, shape, or form prepared for me to place in you what I need to place in you so that you are prepared, so that your bags are packed for whatever's next. You see, the heart and this is, this is a key verse about the heart. Jesus, as I said, picks it up. Paul picks it up in, in certain forms. Uh, this, is all, this is all about the, the, the core of who we are. It's, it's the main theme, certainly, of Samuel, 
both first and second Samuel, and throughout much of the rest of God's story, God's original story in the Bible. And, and what he's talking about in terms of your heart is that's the place where you see the first evidence that things can be different. That regardless of whatever is next, it doesn't have to be one stupid problem after another, one stupid situation after another, one worry, one thing after another. One it doesn't have to be that. Because why? Because what do you have in your heart? What do you have in your core? You have things like your conscience. You have things like a sense of morality. Everybody's got it. Everybody has a sense that there's a right and a wrong. I mean, we try to redefine what's right and wrong, but everybody has a sense that there must be something called justice, right? Everybody's got that. That comes out of the heart, the core. And what it signals to us, what that evidence signals is, is there is someone who knows those things, someone who has those things. And God says, that's why I want to go. I'm not interested in just making the surface look good. I want to go all the way deep. That's why this is deep provision. I want to go all the way to the core of who you are. And certainly, if someone's going to lead my people like this king, it's got to be somebody who has that heart. And, you know, the thing is, God must have, um, or Samuel must have talked to David about this, because David's ultimately the one he's going to pick. Spoiler alert here. He must have talked to David about this, because David's constantly talking about the heart. Even when he does that horrible, horrible thing of committing that ugly, triple sin of adultery, then murder, then lie, 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 right? With Bathsheba. He writes a poem. He writes a psalm, Psalm 51 after that, about what he's asking God to do with his heart. He wants to get back to a pure heart. He says, created me a pure heart, or your translation might say a clean heart. That's the song, the way we sing it in the song. Created me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. What does that mean, a pure heart? Well, you could say it this way. Um, you could say that it's um, uh, an, an orientation. You could say that it's a focus. It's a, it's a heart that's, that isn't cluttered. It's got some simplicity to it. It's not, a, you know, how am I going to deal with this? It's just that one focus, God, on you. You know, instead of all this other stuff swirling around, clear it all out. Just give me that simple, pure heart that focuses on you because that's what I want back. I know that's what got me into trouble, all these other distractions, all these other things. Or, or we might say it this way. It's about having a heart that's dialed in. That's why when he says that, the second line, he says, it's steadfast, it's steady, it's moving, it, it, it's, it's focused on the right thing. Apparently, that's what God looks for a heart that is open to that kind of simplicity, that kind of focus that actually results in a lifestyle like that. That's what he's looking for, to be able to put his deep provision there. In fact, God doubled down with Samuel because Jesse's still sort of on this appearances trip because he wants one of his older sons to be the next king. Verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one. Jesse then had Shema pass, uh, pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? kind of like, am I missing something? Have you, have you ever prayed that prayer with God? Am I missing something? If you are, you're in good company. That's a pastor's prayer every Monday morning. Am I missing something, you know? That's, there, there comes those points where there's got to be something more. And the fact is that there is. And Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest. Jesse answered, he is tending the sheep. Right? What we hear here, what we're going to see here, is the reason why God wants to give you that deeper provision. Not just the place. Not just what is it, but he, the deeper, or the, the reason why he wants to give, to give it. You know, as, as, as Samuel says, am I missing something? He says, well, there's the youngest. The word youngest can actually mean smallest. It's like, why would you want to talk to that, link, you know, stinky little shepherd boy, right? That's, that's what nobody can believe in. I mean, David's not ugly. He just likes to hang out with the sheep. <laughs> and he's the youngest. He doesn't even know what he's up to yet. But this is so beautiful. This is great. It's like God is saying, yeah, I know all that. But I have a purpose for that kid. 
I have a really big purpose for that kid. You see, what this is really saying is, is that God's got a purpose for those who are, are simply willing to turn their hearts in his direction. He's got a purpose. He's, he's got a, 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 re, a place for you to belong. He's got a, a reason for you to be here. He's got a, you know, a place for you in this world, whatever you want to call it. He's got that for you. And he wants to provide his deep provision so that can happen for you. But, but it, it all starts in experiencing it with, with that. And it also says something here that, that, that I just love. Sometimes God has to save us from our saviors. You know, all the people that we look up to and all the people that we, uh, you know, think, oh, man, I wonder what they would think. Or, you know, maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your friend. Maybe it's somebody in the media or, you know, a celebrity or something. Oh, man, I wonder what, you know. And you kind of put your life on that track. We, we live in a celebrity culture and always looking for that kind of thing. God sometimes has to save us from people like that. They don't know what's going on. I'm not literally, but I mean, save us from doing that. We save us from our saviors because here's the thing. A human being cannot possibly save you at the level you need saving. If you're relying on your husband or your wife, for example, to be that person that just makes life great all the time and happy all the time because you live in a happy valley, you're going to be disappointed. You're asking them to do something that's completely unfair. Only God can fulfill that spot. And so this is a beautiful rendition. And this, too, is a theme that runs all through. Yeah, you've got a purpose, no matter how small or insignificant you might think you are. In the New Testament, Paul actually brings this up. He talks about the church and what the church is like in 1 Corinthians 1. I'm going to read this now, but look straight forward. Don't look at anybody sitting around here. Watch this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were noble at birth. But the Lord chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Do not look at your neighbor. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world, to the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before him and that everybody can be a, a potential recipient of his deep provision. That's why God wants, because he wants to give you this loud message. Yeah, I've got a plan for you. I've got a purpose for you. I've got a life of relationship with me. For you. That's not too much to take out of this story in that verse. That's exactly the theme that starts from here and just goes right on through the whole Bible, the whole of God's story. So this youngest one who is tending the sheep, halfway through uh, verse 11, says this, Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So they're all standing going, man, how long is this going to take? So he sent him for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health. I think it means he had red cheeks, probably maybe red hair, some people speculate. Had fine features and handsome features, fine appearance. So again, there's appearance. So, you know, why'd you hide this kid? Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Which begins to give us a clue, a hint, as to the delivery system that God has for this deep provision for you and me, how he wants to deliver it into our hearts. Um, and, and the reason I say that is because you, when you look at this, you've got to ask the question, okay, the story really doesn't answer, why him, does it? I mean, why David? What, what, what's the thing with David like, what's his heart oriented toward that God is looking for? What did God see in him? Toward what? Now, we're going to see some more of this in David because we're going to be in David one more week. But, but uh, uh, you know, he, what God sees in him is some things that we see in Jesus. This is a very messianic story, by the way. It foretells the coming of the Messiah, and that's all I'm going to be able to say about it today. But we'll, we'll pick it up next week. But it's the beginning of that whole whole story of how God sent the Messiah. Right here, this is it. And, and, but what God saw in him is something that Jesus came and showed us, and that is the truth. I came to testify to the truth, Jesus said at his trial. Or in Old Testament terms, the law. Or in our terms, the word of God. 
You see, in those Old Testament days, a lot like these 21st century days, when you're in power and you got all the power and you're the king, you're the, you're the leader, you're the prime minister, you're the president, you got it all, you know, you've got that kind of thing. What do leaders and kings, what have they done from since ancient times with the law? If they didn't like the law, they change it. If, in fact, if they're confronted with the law, if they violated the law, they try to get rid of it, right? That was all around David. David had a completely different reaction to the law that God had set up. Remember, God had a theocracy He's, uh, the, that had laws and had leaders and judges and kings, okay? And so, so, so David, when he's confronted with his sin, he immediately repents and says, you know, you're right. You're right. In fact, he loves the law so much. He loves God's word so much. He wrote an entire famous poem about it. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. If your Bible's floppy and, you know, the, 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 it kind of just opens up and you just open it up, chances are it'll open right there. Mine opened up to it right there. I mean, it, it, it's Psalm 119. Where over and over again, he's just, all he's talking about is what he loves about God's laws and statutes. Six times he flat out says, I love your law. And then, or three times he says, I love your law. Three times he says, I love your statutes. But the whole thing, the longest chapter in the Bible is about how he loves your law. I think that's, I think we can be pretty confident that that's what God saw. You're going to listen to what I say and you're going to love it even if it's not something comfortable to hear because it's from me. And because you know that I want the best for your life. And it's the way forward. And it's how you live. And you see, that's what we see in the, that's what we see in these first many chapters, these first many hundreds of years of the life of Israel. Is that when a society moves away from God's uh, laws, when, God, when, when a society moves away from even knowing what's in God's word, that's when things begin to fall apart. It's as, it's as, it's as common and as, as often as anything else in history. It's why I, w- I was interested when I was listening to a podcast by a guy named Albert Muller. It's called The Briefing. It's, a, um, it's, it's, the, it's the news in, um, in, from a Christian worldview. Okay, so Monday morning, Sharon and I always listen to this every day. And did you hear Muller? Yeah. And so Monday morning, we, we got up and, and we, heard this, we heard this podcast where he talked about some events in the media over the weekend. There was quite a firestorm. Maybe you didn't hear about it because they don't want you to know. But there were several retractions that major news outlets had to make about what they said about Easter and about the Bible. Okay? Let me just show you one of them. Here's one of them. This is National Public Radio. They, they, on Good Friday, they, they, uh, uh, or over the weekend on Easter, they put out this retraction. An earlier version of this post incorrectly described Easter as, quote, the day celebrating the idea that Jesus did not die or go to hell or purgatory or anywhere at all, but rather arose into heaven. <laughs> that's funny, okay? I mean, because that, that's not any like, lousy theology. That's horrible, horrible grammar, okay? So these... These are the people that are paying $60,000, $70,000 a year in journalism schools back east and, uh, well, out here too, of the Ivy League and way up there, the, the most prestigious school. These are the elitists who somehow write a story that goes to a couple of editors who are also in the elite, the top, the smartest people among us, who don't even know, haven't spent time reading the Bible. What did they have to do? All they had to do was go to 1 Corinthians 15 like we did last Sunday. And they would have heard that Easter is actually about Christ died for our sins and was buried. He rose from the dead and was seen. It's not about convoluted statements about Jesus, purgatory, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's not about any of that. You know, and, 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 you know, I know that's kind of weird. Well, that's national public radio. Well, they're usually pretty, pretty sharp and they're usually pretty careful. In fact, but what's interesting is the New York Times, you know, the gray lady, the one that everybody gets their news from, uh, you know, all the other media gets their news from that, or at least they used to, um, five years ago did almost exactly the same thing if these folks had just looked at their history. Now, we say that, we look at that, and some of us on different side of the aisle, then that tends to be say, well, that's a left-leaning journalistic paper. I mean, the program and so forth, uh, website. So let's be fair. Let's go to the right, okay? Let's go to the right-leaning ones because uh, they had a problem too. Kristen Emba uh, wrote a, a story uh, on Sunday 
uh, or sorry, on Good Friday in, uh, the, uh, in the Washington Post about something that the Wall Street Journal did. Because why? Because the Washington Post, when they can tell you something bad the Wall Street Journal did, they want to do that and vice versa. So, so she writes a story called Read Your Bible. You should read your Bible, okay? But here's, here's, here's what it said. On Wednesday, that is last Wednesday, the Wall Street Journal was compelled to issue an amusing, if embarrassing, correction after misquoting Israel's prime minister, Netanyahu, the day before. Quote, an earlier version of the art, this article incorrectly stated Benjamin Netanyahu said Moses brought water from Iraq. <laughs> because, okay, I'm laughing with them, not at them, but now, Here's the thing, in case you're not thinking this is funny, if you've read Numbers 20 lately, Moses did bring water to Israel, but it wasn't from Iraq. It was from A space rock, R-O-C-K, okay? A rock. We didn't read that chapter and love this book, so I can get it, kind of get my vibe here. You know, it, again, society, that, these are the elite. These are the smartest people and when it comes to the Bible, they're really not very smart at all. But, you know, we shouldn't be too hard on them because, you know, 10%, when there was a survey not too long ago, 10% of Americans say that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Pew Research in 2010 came out with another survey. of He said half over half of the people who say they're Christians, they say they go to church, they, 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 they claim their name of being a Christian, can't name the four Gospels. You know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Remember that? I mean, uh, no, wait. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They can't say that. They, over 50, I'm sure you can. Because we're special. But, uh, or, but you know, it's, it also says that over half of the people in America either have read the Bible little or never at all. And these are adults who've lived long enough to have at least cracked the pages all I'm saying to you <coughs> is that if God's going to provide us, we need, that's why we're doing this love this book thing. We, that's the place, that's the, that's the delivery system of his deep provision to us is his law, is his word. The love of his word. And what happens then is exactly what happens for David. God delivers it. Verse 13, so Saul, or so sorry, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel went back to Ramah. Didn't tell Saul. We'll see what happens next week. But notice the capital S. What God wants to provide for you and me deeply in our hearts is himself. So all this stuff that our kids come out of Sunday school with, it, where does Jesus live? He lives in my heart. Or as my daughter used to do, lift up the dress. He lives in my heart. I mean, that kind of thing. It's not so far off. God does want to live in He wants to provide himself there to us so he lives with us. Why? Because we're going to need him for what's next. David's going to need him for what's next. And the wondrous thing about this is David took this to heart with all of his foibles and sins and everything else. David was not just a great king. He was not just a, a, a mighty warrior. He was not just a, you know, a famous, awesome poet. God's, this is what God says about David. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do, which is really cool stuff. That was the last part I added. That's what God wants to provide himself so that can happen. And again, we're going to need it because the way things have gone, if you're going to live for him and you're going to live with his deep provision in your life and you're going to be his person, you're going to be prepared for whatever's next, you're going to be weird because most people are not prepared for what's next. You're going to be odd. You're going to be strange. In David's case, God had to prepare him for ancient warfare. We make ancient warfare, you know, kind of cool and, and, and amazing and heroic, and it was ugly and bloody and horrific and just damaging to everything, body and soul. 
And David had to be prepared. Ancient warfare made David wrestling with lions and bears while he was watching the sheep. You know, he killed lions with his bare hands even as a kid. I mean, amazing stuff. But it made what David was about to go through made that look like playing with his pets. He was about to go up in the very next chapter, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. He's going to go up against a giant of nine feet tall who had armor all over, uh, had a big mouth and a giant sword, and David was going to go against him with a sling, a few pebbles, and a tunic. I mean, he he must have been prepared for that because how would he even do that? Or he had to be prepared for the most powerful man that he knew at the time, the king, to grab his javelin, his spear, and chuck it at him because he was so enraged by him. Just like a, you know, when Saul started going insane, really, and losing it. But you know, the reality is we need to be prepared for warfare too. And I'm not talking about that same kind of warfare, not by a long shot. But spiritual warfare, it's real. They, it, whatever's next, I can guarantee you that there's some spiritual struggle and battle involved. And I'm not talking about warfare against your professor or the media or people at all. I'm talking about what Paul says when he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 5, we don't struggle against flesh and blood. We're not after people. We love our neighbor. He didn't put that part in, but that's part of the scripture, right? He says, we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. If you're going to do that, you're gonna, people are going to think you're weird. And we need to be prepared to take God extremely seriously, but not take ourselves so seriously. I think one of the problems we have in this country is people are taking themselves way too seriously. And Christians, we know that we shouldn't take ourselves so seriously. We've got to take God seriously. But that's going to be a completely switch around from what most people live by. So, of course, they're going to think you're weird. I was thinking about this this week, and one of the best examples of what I'm talking about, sort of having a non-anxious presence and still being able to converse and love everyone. And at the same time, doing the spiritual warfare that God's called us to do in terms of taking ideas captive and, and, and making them obedient to Christ. I was thinking about a, a passage I read from a book a, a couple years ago by a guy named Russell Moore. Russell Moore is uh, the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptists. Don't let Southern Baptists throw you off because he's a really fun and gracious guy. Uh, but he tells a story in his book called Onward about what's next, you know, how do we go onward? Um, about meeting with a a lesbian activist in a major cultural center in America. And the reason she wanted to meet with him at a coffee shop was because she had never met an evangelical Christian. She'd heard about him, but she, in her major metropolis, had never run into somebody who called themselves an evangelical Christian. And she'd heard about kind of the weird stuff we believe, but she just had to see for herself. And so it was a respectful conversation, although, you know, she wanted to know most of all about what we believe about sexuality and what marriage really is and all that kind of stuff. And and he said at certain points in the conversation, she burst out in laughter because she just couldn't believe it. But she finally says something like, she says, you're, you're blowing my brain up. Do you realize how strange you are? Do you realize how different and odd you, must, you are to people who are normal Americans? And, and apparently she kept talking about that, and he was just kind of in another haze. And here's, here's what he said. Before I could answer, I was distracted by those two words, normal America. How things had turned around. She snapped me out of my daydreaming by uh, asking again, seriously, do you know how strange uh, this sounds to me? I smiled, now watch this, not taking himself so surly. I smiled and said, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me too. But what you should know is we believe in even stranger things than that. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky on a horse. (laughs) You don't know what he's talking about, read Revelation. But I mean, that, <laughs> that's really strange when you think about it. But you know, that's not up to us to defend that, is it? It's about the guy on the horse to defend that. It's not about you and me. It's about him. And that's why we so need to know how to be prepared for what's next and receive God's deep provision beyond appearances and whatever we can muster deep in the heart. And the delivery system is his word. And the The provision he wants to give is his own self, his spirit, capital S, to show us how to live that way. You see, that's the end of it all. In fact, let me make one more statement for you. This is the kind of the summary of David's life, and this is the summary uh, of the whole thing. You will only have peace about 
the way, that was the way you live, when your heart worships God, and here's why, because he's the only one who really knows what's next. So as we go to communion today, I just want to ask you, if you would, if this is the desire of your heart, that you would talk to God about this and say, God, I want that deep provision. I want your presence, your spirit in my life. I want to be in the word so I can receive that. But you know what? That's what really communion is all about, isn't it? Because that's why Jesus came, so he could be with us and be in us. So as we do that, let me just ask us to bow our heads and hearts in prayer. And I'm going to give you this time, this communion time, to spend with him saying, God, show me whatever it is that's blocking us up. Show me if there's anything. David said this too. Search my heart and know if there's anything that's keeping me from receiving your deep provision of your presence. Because as I take this communion, I want, I want you. Not knowing all the answers, not, you know, five, five steps to relieving my stress. I want you because I know that you will take care of all of it. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would turn our hearts, that you'd orient us toward that as people, as individuals, as families, as a church. And may it just spread across all our brothers and sisters across this country and then around the world. I thank you for being here. I thank you for the sacrifice that you made when you died in that cross. I thank you for rising from the dead to make it final and to beat back the power of the devil and the power of death and that sin has no sting on us anymore. Death has no sting. I thank you for that, and I I lift this up to you, and uh, we all say back to you, Jesus, we love you for that. Amen. As the song progresses and we worship him with this song, a very powerful song, Broken Vessel. Get up and if you feel so led, I mean, if, you know, this is for Christians. If you're not sure about it, don't worry about it. You, nobody's going to look weird for you if you just want to stay in your seat. But uh, go to the four stations and take your communion there, the elements. Uh, if you're looking for gluten-free, it's over there. It's about Christ's body being broken for you and his blood, which is his life, being shed for you and me. And uh, that makes all the difference in the world. That's how he's provided his presence, his self in us.